Well, if you'd open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 50 this morning. We want to remember that this is God's Word. We come to it with anticipation every week, with reverence, with humility, reminding ourselves that this is the Word we most desperately need. Let's read these verses with that anticipation of God speaking to us. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. When I was a boy, I used to read this one book about legendary knights of the Middle Ages, and as you probably know, knights were required to honor a code of chivalry. Uh, They had to be both courageous in battle, but also merciful to help those in need. A true knight required both qualities. They had to be a kind gentleman in the right moment and a courageous warrior in the right moment. If a person was gentle toward others but cowardly in battle, he could not be a knight. If he was courageous in battle but harsh towards those in need, he could not be a knight. The code required him to be both. And the definition of discipleship that Jesus has been describing in chapter 9 and the preceding chapter is very similar. In the previous passages, he called the disciples to be servants of one another and then to be hopeful and faith-filled toward those who were in their own weak way seeking to serve Christ. So there was a, a merciful disposition towards others that was required of the disciples of Jesus. You'll notice the previous verse, verse 41. No one who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will lose his reward. There's a gracious disposition towards even the smallest act of service. And yet, then he turns the corner and says, on the other hand, there is a a warrior mentality that a disciple must have, and particularly a warrior mentality toward sin. So we are to be gracious towards others, and yet at war with our own sin. We must be both to be a faithful disciple. We might put it this way. A heart for Christ is a heart at war with our own sin. 
A heart for Christ is a heart at war with our own sin. Living for Christ requires, like being a knight requires, it requires a warfare mentality, a fighting battle cry mentality against our own sin. Now, there's three components of this wartime mentality that should be true of us as we seek to live for Christ as his disciples. Three components. The first one he covers in verse 42 is that we must beware of God's judgment on temptations. Those who tempt others. We must beware of God's judgment on temptations. Jesus turns from celebrating even the cup of cold water who is given, the person who gives that to a disciple, to consider those who, rather than helping his disciples, harm them by creating temptations. Whoever, he says, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it's better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, I don't think this phrase, little ones, means only physical children. It's, it's the little ones who believe in me, and from Christ's perspective, all of his disciples are little ones, but in particular those who are vulnerable to a particular temptation. Anyone who would tempt them, who would create, create a weight towards their godliness, Jesus says there is a reckoning, there is a reckoning that the Father will bring to such a person. He views himself, you might think of him here, as a a person who is representing a fatherly care for a child that is facing someone else causing them harm. And he's saying, look, the person who tempts one of my little ones, let me tell you what it's like for that person. That person has a reckoning in store for them. And he uses an illustration. He says, let me tell you what it would be. It would be better for them if you fastened a millstone, the little phrase there is a a millstone of a donkey. It's a millstone so large it required a donkey to turn it. And he's saying, imagine someone who has that fastened around their neck and they are tossed into the sea. There's probably some ironic sobriety present here. He's saying, you see this one who is placing a stumbling block such that my little one is cast down? I will tell you what it would be better for them. It would be better for them if God tied a millstone around their neck and cast them down into the sea. They will find themselves sinking helplessly into the waves because God is watching those who tempt his little disciples. So serious does God take the sin of his people that he is, we could say, (laughs) requiring a reckoning of those who tempt his little disciples to sin. Do you see someone who is tempting a little one, Jesus says. There is a great reckoning in store for that one. God will lay a weight around their neck, and they will feel utterly helpless as they sink towards his judgment. Now, I think this should comfort Christians that God is against those who are against our faith. God is against those who are against our faith. It should also sober Christians because this is just how seriously God takes the holiness of his children. Perhaps more serious than we even take it. God looks with anger at those who would tempt us to sin. Surely we should not look at friendly, in a friendly way towards their temptations if God says there will be a reckoning for any way that they tempt his children. And I think also, and it's worth pointing out, this should warn Christians against reflecting in any way the actions of those who tempt others. Surely we should not be those who tempt Christians to sin. 
knowing as we do of God's perspective of those who tempt Christians to sin. To follow Christ means having a warfare towards sin, and that includes the sin of tempting others. We need to pause and consider, is there any way in our life that we are tempting or burdening the godliness of another person, making a a, a obstacle in their path where it's difficult for them to follow the Lord. We might think of things like sharing gossip on social media or in person. When this person is not a part of the problem or the solution, that is tempting others. When we lash out in self-righteous anger and discourage a person's vulnerable faith, very important thing for parents to consider, that is tempting others. When we share a crude joke, we are tempting others to sin by laughing at it. Very important for young people to consider. When we invite someone into a a sinful activity or even an activity that we don't consider sinful, but it is a burden for their conscience, we are tempting others to sin. When our sarcasm or our laziness or our worldliness makes it harder for our spouse or our child to have a conversation with the Lord in public or in private, we are burdening their faith and tempting them to sin. If we have reason to think for any reason that we have drawn someone away from godliness by our example or our words, we must repent to the Lord and instead be those who make it easy for people to be godly around us. People should find it easy to follow the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength around us. They should find in us a propulsion towards godliness and not a stumbling block keeping them from godliness. Very important and sobering word. To live for Christ means having a a warfare mentality against sin, and that includes the sin of tempting others. It also means being ruthless, point number two, be ruthless toward our own sin. We must beware God's judgment against temptation. We must be ruthless toward our own sin. Here's some of these profoundly striking metaphors. Jesus saying, and he goes from celebrating a cup of cold water positively to using this metaphor of chopping off body parts that are leading you to sin. In a similar way, to get into that night code, he sees a Christian as someone who can in one moment celebrate the smallest act of kindness, and yet in another sense is ruthless when they consider their own sin against God. They view sin as an enemy that is to be destroyed, whatever the cost. They are ruthless toward their own sin. He uses three metaphors in a row, all designed to describe a kind of aggressive, decisive action that a disciple ought to take in order to avoid sin. If your hand, he says, causes you to sin, look down there your Bibles. The hand is often representative in Scripture of the godliness or the ungodliness of a person's actions. Clean hands, for example, and a pure heart are necessary to enter God's presence, as the psalmist writes. So Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. So the feet are often descriptive of the way of life. You think of Psalm 1. The righteous man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the way of ungodliness. It's the direction of life. And he says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. The same with the eye. Scripture views the eye as the lamp of the body. What we behold, the Scripture says, we gradually become. We reflect What we view. So if your eye looks at or for sin, cut it out, Jesus says. 
Now, I agree with the person who said that these are metaphors, but not hyperbole. They are metaphors, obviously. Bodily mutilation is in itself a sin. These are metaphors. Jesus is not literally saying to cut your foot off, cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. That's a metaphor, okay? We understand metaphors. It's a metaphor. It's not meant to be literal. That in itself would be sinful. But it's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. Because he doesn't mean to say, this is absurd to take this kind of action. He's saying, no, this is the kind. Let me give you an example of the kind of dramatic action that ought to be taken by a disciple when they discern some good thing in life that is for some reason tempting them to sin. They ought to consider that good thing Something they can jettison from their life, though it is good, like a hand, like a foot, like an eye, though it is good, if it is leading them consistently to sin, they must consider it worthy of rejection. They must be willing to sacrifice even good things if those good things are causing them to sin, either by committing sin or by neglecting godliness, sins of omission or sins of commission. We must see the decisive action that Jesus expects of a a Christian knight. He expects decisive action against the dragon that is sin. Decisive action, not coddling, not gentleness, not mercy. Decisive, ruthless action, willing to cut out even good things from life. Good things, hands are not bad, feet are not bad, eyes are not bad. But he's saying, look, these good things, if they are leading you to sin consistently, they must go. They must go. And we want to notice the other side of this metaphor, or this statement rather, as well. Jesus does not say to do this just because he says so, or even without a reason. No, he says sin left unchecked leads certainly to death and hell. Did you notice that in the passage? He doesn't just say, if something causes you to sin, stop doing it. He says, no, let me give you a logical reason. Isn't it better to lose this precious thing than to lose everything in the judgment of hell? That's the logic. He says it again and again and again. The repetition makes the emphasis of the point. It's not just cut the hand off. It's like, wouldn't it actually be better to enter life with one hand than to enter hell whole? Wouldn't it actually be better? Doesn't that make sense? If you were doing that physically, if you had this terrible choice, a pirate captured you and said, look, you can lose your hand or I'm throwing you to the sharks. Which one do you choose? There's only one choice to make. There's only one choice to make. He's using that kind of plain logic to make the point. Look, this is a spiritual reality, Jesus says. This is a spiritual reality. Ruthlessness against sin is driven by an accurate view of, of hell. Ruthlessness against sin is driven by an accurate view of hell. And in case you, in your right understanding of the doctrines of God's preserving grace, feel that same objection, well, yes, but aren't we saved and there shouldn't be any fear of judgment? Yes, but a person who is actually alive in Christ proves their life in Christ by responding in the fear of the Lord to the warnings of Scripture. The only people who notice warnings are living people. Have you noticed that? Warnings do nothing. For dead people. If there was a dead person driving a car somehow, that was possible, work with me on the metaphor. If they were driving a car and they were heading and there was a sign that said, Cliff coming, stop. 
The dead person would not stop. They would go over the cliff. But a living person sees the warning. What do they do? Well, because they are living, they turn around. So the Bible uses the warnings of Scripture to reveal the true life of a Christian that we know that true life that will not be taken from a true Christian, but it will be proven and revealed as they respond to the warnings of Scripture. It will be demonstrated by a rightful, sober assessment of hell. The doctrines of God's grace are not meant to produce a flippancy about the judgment of God. They're meant to produce a sober response. Christians should be those who most fear the Lord in an appropriate, awestruck, humble, honoring of the Lord kind of way. Christians should be those who believe that God is honest when he says that sin left unrepentant and unchecked leads certainty to death and hell. And they say, well, I certainly, since I follow the Lord, do not want to live that lifestyle that the Bible says certainly leads to hell. Therefore, I will not. And the grace of God comes through that warning and preserves the Christian. So if you are a Christian... You ought to care about these warnings. You ought to respond to these warnings. You ought to say, well, surely my life must not be that which runs headlong towards sin, which always leads to hell. Therefore, I think Christians ought to do well to study, in some measure, the doctrine of hell. Jesus references hell continually throughout his ministry. Jesus references hell continually throughout his ministry. He intended the doctrine of hell to bring a a counterbalancing worldview of God's holiness to a world, including his disciples, who minimize the holiness of God and minimize the severity of sin. Hell brings a realistic perspective of the severity of sin. So the study of hell adds a ruthlessness against sin. I don't want to do anything of those things that will lead ultimately to hell. Ralph Venning, in his very sobering but provoking book, The Sinfulness of Sin, says this. The damnation state of sinners will admit of no relief. It will be punishment without pity. Misery without mercy, sorrow without succor, crying without comfort, torment without ease. The sinner can look for no relief from God, for God judges and condemns him. None from conscience, for that accuses and abrades him. None from the devils, for they torment him. None from hope, for that is departed from him. None from time, for this state is forever. It is a state of all misery, and it has no consolation, not so much as a little drop of water to cool the tongue. It is misery, more misery, nothing but misery, just as sin is all sin and nothing but sin. When Jesus says it is better to be drastic against those things that would lead you to sin, he is saying that because he has an accurate view of the horrifying reality of those who run headlong towards sin. He's not giving hyperbole. He's just painting life as it actually is. And he is merciful. And so he wants to tell people before they are there, don't take it easy on the things that send people there. Don't 
coddle sin because it leads people there. He's not trying to be harsh or exaggerative. He's just being honest the same way you would be abrupt with a child who runs towards a fireplace. This isn't the time for a conversation. Stop! You're not being mean. You're not being cruel. You're actually being kind and merciful to impress upon them the severity of the consequences if they don't obey. You're just being loving. That's what Jesus is being here. He says you could prefer to be gentle towards your fleshly desires, but then you would find all of your desires experiencing nothing but eternal suffering anyway. You can coddle sin, but then you will be cast into God's judgment. You can amputate sin, and then you will enter life. We might paraphrase this whole passage. Be fighting sin as all God's disciples do, or God will condemn you. And this is a sobering word. This is one of those moments where we need to look at the Bible and say, this is God's word. And yes, we would love, especially as Americans, to have it be nicer or something. But nicer is often dishonest. Imagine the parent who says to that child, I probably wouldn't go there. It's hot. That's a terrible parent. Terrible. You take the child away from a parent like that. You know, you might find that a little hot. I don't want you to feel like I'm being harsh. No, Jesus says, do whatever you have to do to turn away from those things that God has said lead to eternal suffering in judgment. Do you remember a few months ago when we looked at at Jesus' description of discipleship in In chapter 8, Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his soul for eternal life? I said at that point that I think our problem, it's not that we don't understand Jesus' logic. I think the same is true for this passage. It's not that we can't envision a scenario where the child is running to the fire and the right thing for the parent to do is say, Stop! Let the ball go! You don't run after it! We get that logic. We get that logic. The problem, I think, is that we don't really believe those are the two choices. We believe there's a third way. Jesus says, be ruthless against sin. If you are not willing to be ruthless against sin, you will find yourselves coddling sin all the way to God's judgment. Just as he said, if you're not willing to lose your life in service of the Lord, you will keep it temporarily, but you will lose it finally in judgment. If this is your treasure, you're finally going to lose it anyway. There are two ways. You can give your life to the Lord, or you can lose it in judgment at the end anyway. In this passage, he says you can be ruthless towards your sin, or you will find that the end of that sin, which you allow to master you, will be the judgment of God. Because people who follow Christ are fighting against their sin, because they fear the judgment of the Lord, and they want to honor him. The danger, I think, is that we don't believe there are only two choices. We think, surely, there is a third choice. But to say that is to call God a liar. I think for Westerners, the third choice option is by far the most dangerous lie of all. It goes something like this. Be moderate with sin, and God will be moderate with you. Be moderate with sin. Look, don't don't go nuts. you got to resist some of those things. 
Be moderate with sin. And you know what? You'll find if you're moderate with sin, God will be moderate with you. Maybe you won't get the lavish generosity of some of these like holy people that are constantly doing righteousness and resisting sin all the time. You won't kind of get lavish generosity, but God will be moderate with you. He won't overly correct or punish you, and you'll get in somehow. Maybe not with the big mansion. I'm not going to be up front with them. We say, we'll be in the back, but I was moderate towards sin, and therefore God was moderate with me. Brothers and sisters, there is no third option like that. There is no third option. It doesn't mean there's not more and less godly people. But even the least godly person takes some action of fighting against sin, says to the Lord Jesus, you can take my life. I am not trying to keep it. They are not seeking to hold on to their life and Jesus at the same time. They are saying, you are my master. I'm struggling. I'm fighting. I'm not perfect. Notice he doesn't say, be perfect or God will condemn you. No, he says, be ruthless with sin because it's better to be ruthless with sin than to find your life heading towards God's judgment. But there is no verse in the Bible that says, be moderate with sin and God will surely be moderate with you. God does not help those who help themselves to just a little bit of sin. He does not. It's just the truth. Unless you decide you don't believe God, which if you don't believe God, you might as well give up the whole thing. But if you believe God and that this is God's word, then there should be a, an active determination to fight against and even willingness to sacrifice those things that lead us towards sinfulness against the Lord. A, a determination that this is by far the most important thing I'm going to do today is to seek to be godly. More important than anything I might prefer if it means sinning to get it. There is no third way. Spurgeon says this, Do you think so badly of my Lord as to dream that he will pander to your passions by giving you liberty to live in sin and yet go to heaven? For shame, has Christ come to play the lackey to your lusts and let you do the work of Satan and then receive the wages of the godly? Surely not. Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This passage says, be fighting sin or you will find that condemnation is the wages of unfought sin. Now, I want to say a brief word to those who refuse this word. And there might be some children here who grow up in this church and who sit here week after week after week and yet turn away from God in the end. And I want to warn you, if that's you, if you've sat under my preaching, if you've been in our children's ministry and you hear about believing in Jesus, and I don't care if you're four years old or 14 years old, and you've heard God's word, listen, there will come a day when the opportunity to humble yourself and repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord will be over. And when that day comes, all of the messages that you have heard will bear witness against you. They will bear witness against you. God will be able to parade in front of heaven all of the times that you heard me say, you must believe in the Lord Jesus. You must turn away from sin, and you rejected it. Let me appeal to you. Do not wait until you're too dead to respond. Listen to Venning again and try to imagine this moment, having grown up in church and yet rejected the word of the Lord. Listen to what Venning says. And imagine this moment. The door is shut. And it is vain to knock. The day offers and means of grace are at an end. 
no room is left for repentance. God's long-suffering will suffer no longer. The mediation of Christ Jesus is over. There is no possibility of mending one's condition. Think of it, poor sinner. Think of it in time before it is too late. For if you die in your sins, though you should weep out your eyes in hell, it will do you no good. God will not know you nor hear your cry, but will laugh at your calamity and mock you in the midst of your torments. And if you want the verses to back that up, I could give them to you. If you are a young person or an old person here, and you have spent a lifetime dabbling with church and not humbling yourself before God, let me appeal to you. Do not let my preaching and this church bear witness against you on that day that you had countless opportunities to turn to the Lord Jesus, but you waited until the door was shut and there was no one to hear you. Jesus is not just a nice guy, but he is so kind to say things like this before it happens so that there is still time to do something about it. We must be ruthless towards our own sin. Quick caveat about this, about this ruthlessness we ought to have towards sin. You can't sin in order to stop sinning. So just to be clear, if you find yourself sinning and you think, well, the only way I can stop this is by sinning another way. Nope, nope, that won't work. You can't sin to stop sinning. I've... uh, Imagine a number of scenarios in this regard. You can think of the person who says, I'm always angry at my husband, so I will divorce them so that I stop being angry at them. No, you can't sin to stop sinning. Stop sinning. If you're finding yourself angry at drivers on the road, you can't run them off the road so that you'll cease being angry with them anymore. You can't sin to stop sinning. The goal here is to press into the Lord in repentance. And the important thing to understand is that requires sometimes practically letting go of good, otherwise wonderful things because for us, they consistently lead towards sin, even radical action that makes this necessary. I love what Chris Lungard says in this regard. He says, the main ploy of the flesh is to slip worldliness into the mind. Listen to this. To slip worldliness into the mind under the guise of necessity. To slip worldliness into the mind under the guise of necessity. What's he saying? Well, I can't do without that. Why do you think Jesus used such basic examples as a hand, an eye, and a foot? There is nothing in your life that comes close to being as necessary to you as your hand, your eye, or your foot. And if that's the level of being willing to turn away from good things, if they consistently lead us towards sin, then surely there is nothing that is necessary and that we have to have. And if it causes us to sin, well, so be it. There is nothing in that category of safe and necessary if it causes us to sin. So would you describe your fight against sin 
as a spiritual battle where you regularly make choices to amputate good things because of a greater passion for godliness? Or, or would we describe it as a friendly arm wrestling contest where sometimes he wins and sometimes I win, but it's not too big a deal? Now, friends, we ought to view sin as a thing that leads to God's judgment. For the Christian, it is that horrific thing that led to Jesus' death on the cross, that led to him suffering in our place. For the non-Christian, it is that thing that led to God's judgment unless they repent. So we ought to be willing to take dramatic, drastic action in order to stop sinning. Let me give you some maybe modern paraphrases of this passage. If having a smartphone leads consistently to sin, get rid of it. If having a certain job leads you to consistently neglect your family or the church, get rid of it. If your late night movie watching leads you to neglect God's word or God's people, stop and go to bed early. If having social media leads you to gossip or anxiety, get rid of it. Now, you can fill in the blanks for your stuff, but this is just a paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. Now, our reaction is, well, those things aren't bad. That's the point. Neither is a hand, an eye, or a foot. Of course they're not bad. Of course some people might be able to enjoy them without sinning. But if for you they lead consistently, I'm not talking about one time or occasional, but they lead consistently to sin in neglecting God's commands or committing sinful offenses against God, if they are consistent, there is nothing that you should draw safe in your life and say to God, well, anything but that, that's necessary, not if it leads you to sin. Your life, we could put it this way, ought rather to be physically maimed than to be consistently sinful. Is it a bummer to not have a smartphone if that's you? Yeah. Like it's hard to go without a hand. But you ought rather that than to consistently sin. What about a home computer? What about Netflix? Is that wrong? No. If it causes you to consistently sin, what ought you to do? Get rid of it. What about a certain kind of conversation that you have with a certain kind of person at work that trends in the direction of ungodliness, if it consistently causes you to sin. Is it going to be awkward to not have that conversation? Probably. But if it consistently causes you to sin, get rid of it. What about a certain possession that you find yourself idolizing over and spending more and more time and money on and it's distracting you from God and godliness or God's people? Is it bad? No. If it's doing that consistently, get rid of it. What's the point here? Jesus is saying, look, our tendency is to think of these things as necessary, and as long as they're not bad, we ought to be able to keep them. His tendency is to say, let's start with the priority that we are called to live for the one who made us. And we can't use the things he made to defy the one who made us. And so if they cause us to sin, get rid of them. Are sports bad? No. If they cause you to neglect godly pursuits in your life, should you keep doing them? No. Is certain attire bad? No. If it keeps you to 
think always about yourself and you're not thinking of others because you're so concerned with your appearance and your vanity seems to elevate every time you pass by a mirror, ought you to change your wardrobe? Yes. The danger for Christians is that they assume sin can be got rid of only by addressing that sin itself rather than being willing to sacrifice those things that lead consistently to sin. Of course, we need repentance and engaging with the God, with the Lord and transacting before the gospel and seeking him and seeking counsel. Yes, but some part of change requires practical differences in life. Like this guy who's walking into heaven with one arm, one foot, and one eye in Jesus' metaphor, but is happily made whole again in heaven, having sacrificed those things that led to sin on earth. The ruthlessness that we ought to have towards sin should flow out of a general perspective of our life, which leads to Jesus' third point, we'll cover briefly, that we are to be resolved for sacrificial holiness. Look down at your Bibles. He covers the fire of judgment, and then apparently changing the metaphor in verse 49, he says everyone will be salted with fire. Strange mixture of metaphors. Everyone will be salted with fire. To be salted with fire is to be seasoned with something that burns and purifies. It also calls to mind the Old Testament sacrifices, many of which were sprinkled with salt. The point of being salted or seasoned with fire seems to be that every true disciple is called to personal sacrifice on the road of discipleship. Every true disciple is called to personal sacrifice on the road to discipleship. He's saying another way what he said earlier, if you will cling to your life at all costs, you will lose it in the end. The fire of losing that hand, that foot, that eye is painful. But ultimately, you must be salted with that kind of sacrificial obedience if you are going to be a true disciple. As Jesus said, if we would lose our lives, we must do so so that we can find them in the end. Then to drive the point home positively, he changes the salt metaphor and emphasizes the importance of salt retaining its quality. Salt is good, he says. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, which some salt that they used in that area could, how will you make it salty again? The point here seems to be there is a quality that makes a disciple a disciple. And in context, it is that quality of being godly. And he says, if you're a godly person and you lose your godliness, what good are you? In the same way that if you are called salt, but you've lost all of your preserving effects in that culture, you're no good for anything anymore. They had impure salt in the area, and sometimes it could lose its preserving effects. You sprinkle it on the meat to keep it from going bad, but it doesn't do it anymore. Well, he's saying that's true of the Christian. If you lose your godly saltiness, you're like salt that's supposed to be preserving against ungodliness. It's not good for anything anymore. Have salt in yourselves. To use the metaphor, be resolute towards sacrificial holiness. Be resolute. Be unwilling to surrender your purity, the thing that makes you a salty Christian. The thing that makes you a disciple is your determination to be godly. 
If a disciple of Christ, called to holiness and called against sin, loses the very purity that makes them distinct from the world because they don't want to feel the suffering of sacrifice for the Lord that that requires, what happens? They are no good anymore. Don't lose what makes you a disciple, Jesus is saying. The purity of your life toward Christ. Don't surrender your identity and cease to be a salty Christian. Don't let the fire of sacrifice lead you to give up your holiness. Instead, give up those things in life so that you can be more holy. And he adds that they be at peace with one another, probably because in the context, the main expression of their sin was their selfish ambition and arrogance towards others. So a Christian who is zealous for holiness, once again, we go back to that night illustration. What is he like towards others? He's gracious and peaceful. He's not striving or ambitious. He's at peace with others. The point of this whole passage is to call Christians to the code of discipleship, to not be moderate towards sin in some vain hope that God will be moderate towards me, but to strive towards holiness, without which Hebrews says no one will see the Lord. And we do this remembering the context of the passage and who is telling them these things, that he is the one who said they must take up their cross. Why? Because he was taking up their cross. Whenever Jesus speaks of sacrifice for his sake, what should come to our mind is his sacrifice for our sake. This isn't some distant ruler calling you to go. Go out there and work in the fields while I sit here in luxury. This is a master who said he is on his way to Jerusalem and he will literally be laid at the altar to pay for our sins. He will suffer in that place outside the camp facing God's judgment and he is the one who says, sacrifice yourselves and take up your cross and run towards holiness as true followers of me. It's important to remember, we're not being asked to do this by a Savior who is indifferent to the pain of suffering. Rather, it's the one who faced greater suffering than any hand or foot or eye that we could lose because he was doing it to pay for all of our sins. Listen to what Spurgeon says as we bring this to a close. He suffered all the horror of hell. In one pelting shower of iron wrath, it fell upon him with hailstones bigger than a talent, and he stood until the black cloud had emptied itself completely. There was our debt, huge and immense. He paid the utmost farthing of whatever his people owed, and now there is not so much as a farthing due to the justice of God in the way of punishment from any believer. And though we owe God gratitude, Though we owe much to his love, we owe nothing to his justice. For Christ in that hour took all our sins, past, present, and to come, and was punished for them all there and then, that we might never be punished because he suffered in our place. A heart for Christ knows that the Christ who suffered for sin and to pay for the wrath of God that comes against us for our sin is the one who is calling us to suffer in our own small ways to turn away from ungodliness and toward righteousness. So when we think about those things, 
that thing that we have that we probably should give up in order to pursue godliness, that activity that is not bad in itself, but we ought to give up so that we can pursue godliness, that context that consistently leads us to sin, that we should give up in order to pursue godliness. When we think about those things, we ought to think also of him who gave up the acclaim of heaven to receive the judgment of God against us. And he invites us, be godly. Be willing to give up those things temporarily that would lead you away from me. Have salt, the salt of godliness in your life. Sacrifice your life for my sake. And, and, rather than hell, you will find that all who belong to me because of my death, will enter life whole and joyful forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all confess with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Make this true of us, Lord Jesus. Bring to mind those good things that regularly lead us to sin and help us to cut them out so that we can pursue godliness. Lord, give us discernment of our hearts and help us to enjoy the good news of your forgiveness, of the relief of turning from sin and turning to you. Lord, for any whose heart has been hard towards your word over months or years, soften them by your grace and bring them back to you in repentance to experience the joy of fellowship with you afresh, I pray. In Jesus' name.